On the wall of the Special Forces Memorial Court at Fort Bragg, the words of the prophet Isaiah are etched in stone. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randall Sugar answered that call. Today we inscribe their lives and their deeds in the distinguished and valorous history of this country's men and women in uniform. We pray that God will embrace their souls and may their service and sacrifice inspire generations to come. Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randall Schugert were real American heroes. During the military operation in Mogadishu on October 3rd, two American helicopters were downed by hostile fire. Although United States Army Rangers established a defensive perimeter around the first downed helicopter, they could not reach the second one quickly by land. In the wreckage of this helicopter lay four injured Army crewmen. Another helicopter with Sergeants Gordon and Shugart on board was dispatched to provide cover from above. But they came under withering fire, and the two sergeants instinctively understood that if the down crew was to stand a chance of survival, someone would have to get them on the ground. Immediately, Sergeants Gordon and Shugart volunteered to go. They were told, no, it's too dangerous. They volunteered again. Again, they were told, no. They volunteered a third time and permission finally was granted. Sergeants Gordon and Shugart knew their own chances of survival were extremely bleak. The pilot of their helicopter said that anyone in their right mind would never have gone in. But they insisted on it because they were comrades in danger, because they believed passionately in the creed that says, I will not fail those with whom I serve. And so they asked their pilot to hover just above the ground and they jumped into the ferocious firefight. Gary Gordon and Randall Shugart died in the most courageous and selfless way any human being can act. They risked their lives without hesitation. They gave their lives to save others. Their actions were clearly above and beyond the call of duty. Today, on behalf of the United States Congress, I award them both the Medal of Honor. Special episode for you guys. I have uh, two guests on with me, uh, Bill Delaporte and Dan Iback from Archon Ready Group. Uh, I've recorded podcasts with both of them individually previously. Um, but for people who maybe didn't listen to those episodes, can you guys just give like a, 
a brief snapshot of uh, who you are and what you've done in the military? Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Sure, go ahead, Bill. <laughs> All right, I'll go ahead. Um, yeah, so as uh, uh, Dan, um, yes, I did 21 years in the military. I did seven years in first range of battalion. Um, kind of uh, didn't leave myself many choices after high school. So, um, you know, military was always something I wanted to do anyways. Uh, you know, 9-11 happened and I wasn't getting to go. 375 got to go, and then ACO 175 got to go, and I was like, screw this. So I went to uh, selection for the unit, uh, made selection uh, there in 2002, um, and then, you know, stayed there at the unit until uh, 2016 uh, when I retired. So 14 years at the unit since I've been retired, done some work with um, Air Force, uh, kind of the white side, rescue squadrons, uh, special operations, uh, and... Um, and then, you know, now with uh, Archon Ready Group, uh, doing doing the shooting courses with them. And then also, uh, you know, Billy and I work with uh, Grizz Global Solutions. Um, we do some executive protection for some high net worth individuals. So that's kind of uh, me in a nutshell. Awesome. Yeah. As far as after retirement, the same, same thing. Dan and I have been, hell, Dan and I have known each other now for, probably 20 plus years now, I guess, somewhere, somewhere in that realm. We haven't always been a long uh, marriage. Yeah. Long marriage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, 22 years in the army, 17 of those, um, with the unit, both as direct support. And then finally on the operational side of the house. Um, but yeah, after, after, re after retirement, pretty much the same thing working with Whiteside Soft uh, and now with Archon more with the civilian and, and, you know, we'd love to do some more law enforcement, um, especially with the, with what's going on in the country today. We, we feel we can hopefully improve or make it a little bit better. Yeah. There's a lot there with, um, you know, law enforcement and, and, uh, the attitude towards law enforcement. Um, and I've kind of bounced around on this. Um, you know, I try and see it from the other person's perspective, even if I disagree with them on a subject, particularly when it comes to, you know, police involved shootings and whatnot. Um, I just have a hard time finding the logic and the opposing argument. You know, I support law enforcement. I support, um, you know, good actions by police officers. And if, if someone does something that's they shouldn't have, then I think, you know, they should get prosecuted or what have you. Um, but I, I don't know. There's such a huge disconnect, um, it seems like, in this country. And uh, a lot of it is identity politics. But it, it's really unfortunate. And, you know... I, I would say that it's probably not a fun time to be a cop, depending on where you're at uh, in the country. Uh, so you you guys have been training police officers, or you're just now starting to sort of break into that? Well, we're starting to break into it right now. And you know, I think um, you know, what we would uh, or what we do offer is how do you maximize your time on the range? You know, because, you know, it, 
I don't know all the details in all the shootings that happen, you know, all over the country. Uh, you know, I pretty much get my intel from the news like everybody else. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, having a good plan when you go to the range and then executing that plan on the range and having that training act, actually um, correlate to what you think you're going to have happen, you know, on, in your day-to-day work, you know, is super important. Um, you know, with, with the security side of our of the companies that, uh, that Bill and I work with, you know, we, we have to do like these, these qualifications for random states and they're, you know, loosely based on police qualifications just on the security side. And, and they're just absolutely ridiculous. You know, if we had to defend our clients, you know, or if we were in the law enforcement, it was the same qualification. If we had to use our weapons, you know, in to defend a civilian or, you know, to uh, engage somebody committing a crime, you know, they just do not prepare you adequately in, in my, my mind. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So, uh, Bill, you, you had a video that you recorded and posted on Instagram uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting and I'd like to talk about that. Um, it, it was on shooting and grip and, um, and accuracy uh, can you sort of walk through uh, what your intentions were and and let's talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so, uh, you know, if you look at the fundamentals of shooting, uh, which is stance, grip, side pitch or side alignment and trigger manipulation, you call it trigger squeeze, you can call it whatever you want. Um, there's Those are really your hardcore fundamentals. Some people consider breathing a fundamental and I disagree with that entirely. Hmm. Um, but the, the point is, or the point I was trying to make is when you're starting out and it, actually, I'm glad you bring this up because I've, I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days. When, when you see videos of us teaching people on the range, you may see someone with a horrible stance, or you may see someone, um, who's not controlling recoil very well. Those, those are typically people that are new shooters. And we're not trying to overwhelm them with too much information. What we're trying to get them to understand is if I hold my weapon relatively still, you're not going to be hold. You're not going to be able to hold a weapon perfectly still uh, because we're we're humans. We're not a bench vice. Um, the gun is going to move, but as long as the weapon moves while the sights are aligned. The weapon would have to move a huge amount before you miss, say, you know, a, a 10 inch target downrange. Mm. Um, and, and Dan and I, you know, we call that the perceived wobble. You know, it looks like the gun is moving all over the place, but as long as it's aligned, you're going to hit your target. Uh, and in order to maintain alignment, I don't need the perfect grip. I can I can hold the weapon with one hand just fine, and still be uh, accurate. And if you look at uh, some of the shooting disciplines, where guys are shooting strong hand only, guys and gals are shooting strong hand only uh, at 50 yards, and they're cutting the X out at 50 yards. Um, you know that's a perfect example of I don't need a phenomenal two-handed grip. I just need to be able to hold the weapon 
relatively still with the sights aligned while I pull the trigger to the rear. That was, that was kind of the, the point of the video. Yeah, and in the video, you, you uh, I think you purposely had a bad grip, but you were still hitting your target, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, I was hitting eight-inch plates on a plate rack at 20 yards with a uh, less than optimal grip. Uh, but the grip that I did have was plenty to hold the weapon uh, in alignment, the, the sights in alignment. So that's, that's why sometimes, you know, like I said, you'll see somebody at the range and, you know, they've just got a horrible stance or, uh, you know, they've got a horrible grip um, and they're not managing recoil. So they're never going to be able to shoot extremely fast. None of that matters to a new shooter. What matters the most is putting the sights on the target, maintaining alignment and pulling the trigger to the rear without disturbing that alignment. And, and they're going to hit. And then that fosters confidence. That confidence leads to uh, improvement on the other fundamentals. Right. So I've watched, um, you know, there are a bunch of guys who teach shooting from Army, Navy, uh, on the Tier 1 level. Um, and one thing I do notice is when guys are shooting, when they're coming from those places, uh, their grip is very solid and from what i can tell the way they manage the recoil is is pretty solid as well um so th i thought that video was really interesting because I've, I've always seen there's different uh different companies different guys talking about how important it is for grip and whatnot um so you also mentioned uh, something interesting when you talked about how people think breathing is a fundamental for shooting um i know particularly from uh, like looking at long-range shooting, sniping. Um, one of the things that I've seen in movies or books or whatnot over the years is like before a guy takes a shot, he holds his breath, uh, I guess, to not disturb uh, the shooting. Um, so you, you would say that you don't think that's as important as people make it out to be? No, in long-range long shooting, absolutely it's important. Okay, okay. But it's a rest point. It's a respiratory pause. It's not, you know, holding your breath for 20 seconds. The, right. first, the right. first thing that's going to go when you hold your breath is your vision. Um, and, you know, that's, that's probably fairly important when it comes to shooting. <laughs> and and you, you can see that uh, with divers uh, or anybody that's had a shallow water blackout in a pool. Uh, you know, everything just goes from... It just goes down to a small circle, and then that's it. You're, you're blacked out, you know. So um, vision is the first thing to go when you hold your breath. So, yeah, a respiratory pause is fine. Um, but when it comes to pistol shooting or, or something like that, yeah, you, you don't need to hold your breath. And then don't get me wrong, grip is extremely important when we want to pick up our speed, drive those sights back onto the target, um, Speed doesn't come from how quickly I can pull that trigger. Speed comes from things like a solid stance, a great grip, using that grip and stance to get your sights back on target quickly, resetting the trigger during recoil, um, prepping the trigger as you're finalizing your sights. 
all those things. That's that's where speed comes from. Um, but uh, yeah, the gun but handling, I, the gun handling is, is what what will pick up the speed. Um, you know, as you go through a stage or as you're defending yourself within your home. Right. Yeah. And, and, and all that can be dry fired. And that, you know, kind of goes back to the, uh, you know, the police officers. Um, now I, I'm sure that many departments don't have the luxury of, of having, you know, access to their weapons all the time. I don't know that for a fact, but, you know, uh, you know, we, we would encourage everybody to dry fire, and, you know, that just is chance to train um, without shooting. Uh, so the time comes when, you know, you have to use your weapon. Um, you know, you're, you have the, the muscle memory already built in. Well, look at the uh, Dante Wright incident. I mean, hands down, that was, that, that was a shit show on multiple levels. Uh, right? And I, I feel bad for everybody involved. Um, but you know, if for two minutes before that officer came on duty, she dry fired, all right, this is, this is muscle memory for, if I've got to get my weapon out, this is muscle memory for if I've got to get my taser out. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and armchair quarterback it. I just know for a fact what I do before I do anything. It's, I always associate it back to free fall. You know, I, I never just got on the plane and just sat there and did nothing until it was time to exit that aircraft. You know, I would go over my emergency procedures. All right, this is what I'm going to do when it's time to deploy my parachute. If that doesn't happen, this is what I'm going to do. And you know, I would go through the motions, just sit there, close my eyes and go through the motions. This is what I'm going to do in case of a malfunction. Um, that's because that's, that shit's scary. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that uh, incident was scary for her, too, though. So, <laughs> But it's, a, it's the same thing. Know. I mean, uh, you know, underwater dive, the same thing. Anything where you're taking your life in your own hands, you know, uh, driving, uh, you know, you uh, moto, uh, you know, any of this stuff, I mean, you know, to include then your job when your job is being, uh, you know, a police officer in the military or something, you know, fire also, you know, um, you know, dry firing those little, those little aspects of where the critical points where your job can go wrong are, are, you know, are, are key. Yeah. So do you, um, you mentioned like how you know you're you're heading to the point where you you're getting ready to jump and you're just kind of visualizing these things in your mind. I feel like that's a good practice for everything in life, um, but especially if you're doing something that's risky, like jumping out of an airplane or or being a police officer. Um, I've watched different podcasts and you know they were talking to uh, this one former SEAL. And someone asked him a question about, you know, law enforcement and, and the tra- the amount of training that they, they have. And, um, you know, each municipality is, is responsible. Uh, you know, they sort of set the guidelines for, you know, whatever the qualifications that officers need to keep. Uh, budgets are different depending on where you're at. So it's, it really is kind of different. But uh, some departments have less budget. Some have more um, but 
what the the seal did say was he feels like you know the police officers should spend something like thirty percent of their time training. Uh, whereas now they, I don't know, maybe some officers do spend they do train on their own time, sort of when they're off the clock. But uh, how do you feel about that sort of scenario? I mean, we've we've worked with I know enough people in law enforcement, and I've worked with enough law enforcement. Uh, that I, I feel relatively comfortable uh, saying what I'm about to say. Yep, absolutely. There are some law enforcement folks out there that are shooting on the weekends, buying ammo out of their own pocket. Some of them are competitive shooters. Uh, some of them are phenomenal. On the flip side, uh, there are law enforcement folks that show up for the um, quarterly or biannually uh, qualification and that's it a lot of departments some of them don't have the funding to do anything other than train for that particular state qualification so there's and if you look at those state qualifications it's not very stressful to pass those things um most of them i would argue so now you're not building stress into your training. So I, I would rather see less focus on these lame ass state qualifications and more focus on high stress training, maybe using the same round count, you know, it, it doesn't matter, but at least I, I, I think that would be better time served for a lot of organizations. I, I don't know, Dan, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I agree um, on, on on all of the above. I and I, I go back to that. Uh, you know, it, it can't really be enforced, but it can be encouraged. You know, the hey, take time and dry fire. You know, uh, like like Bill mentioned. You know, maybe you know when you come on duty and you're you're you know putting your gear on. You know, uh, you know first of all, make sure that gun's clear. The taser's got the uh, cartridge off the end. Uh, you know, so you don't ad that thing into the locker or whatever. But you know, take take the time and. And, and go through the motions of, uh, you know, the draw and presentation and drop the hammer on an empty chamber and did that front sight move. You know, are you picking up your sights? I mean, you you see it in videos and, you know, newsreel and, you know, I've seen it in, in combat. Um, when guys go to the pistol, it's a very, very hard weapon to shoot, period, let alone when you're super stressed out. And then you start looking. We get so custom shooting paper that we are not used to shooting humans. I mean, no one's used to shooting humans, right? It's, it's morbid. Um, but, you know, humans don't stand still. They move around. And um, they, uh, you know, I've, I've seen it where people transition to that pistol, and now they got this target that's either fleeing or just moving within a room, and they're looking at the target as opposed to the sights. And then, you know, shots are maybe not going where they're supposed to or are entirely missing, um, or just not as effective as possible. So, you know, the best you can do is is get those reps in, build the muscle memory so that if the day comes that you have to, you know, use that, you at least are giving yourself the best chance of success. Yeah. So yep. where, you, where you guys were at, like at, at your previous unit, um, you know, that is the, the top tier of the U.S. Army. Um, so obviously you guys were highly trained. 
but you guys were also deploying quite often. So how often would you say, if you can talk about it, like how often were you guys shooting and training when you were not in combat? Like if, if you can give like a, maybe a percentage of time. I mean, for for my day. team, no less, no less than three days a week, no less. And that's like an all day kind of thing, morning to night. Uh, it's well, no, because once you start hitting that point of diminishing return, mm. you know you've got to be switched on enough to know that, all right, hey, I've I've done the best I can do today. Right. Uh, it's time to time to call it. Yeah, uh, you'd say uh, like a uh, you know eight, yeah, like eight you know, eight to 11. So, you know, three hours in the morning, you're either probably doing shooting or CQB. And then, um, you know, in the afternoon, you're either doing the other or you're, you know, maybe doing a comms class or, uh, you know, working on maybe you went free fall and when jumping in the afternoon or, um, you know, any of the other tasks that were associated with. But yeah, like Bill said, you're, you know, you're on the range probably, you know, three days a week and in the shoot house, you know, uh, two days a week. And, and, you know, when we were, um, when we were deployed, depending on where you were also, you had opportunity, you know, not so much shoot house, but you had, you know, your every night or every day targets for that. But, you know, there's time on the range also. Yeah. I mean, you damn near had a gun in your hand five days a week, whether, you know, I was, I was just talking normal flat range, uh, working on whatever gun handling skills, fundamentals, speed, accuracy, whatever. And then days in the shoot house. So, and there, there was a long time, you know, five days a week, you got a gun in your hand. Right. But the other thing too, is the selection process, the psych, the psychological part of it, you know, uh, some, it's just not feasible to have a selection process for law enforcement that is similar to, you know, your special missions unit. Uh, though it, w- it, wasn't, you know, what, it wasn't feasible to have it for the military. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, you couldn't select the entire military or even, you know, for other portions of the military. You know, I mean, it was a very finite number of people that were there at the tip of the spear. And I'm not using that as, you know, any kind of pat on the back or anything. I'm not saying they were they were great people or the best people. They were just the right people for a very unique job. Um, but it, it did have a, a, a lot of, um, a lot of data points went into the selection process. And, um, you know, some yeah. were physical, some were, some were, um, you know, intellectual and some were, uh, most were psychological. Yeah. A, a few years ago. So before I was podcasting, I'd co-founded a company called Bar Stars, and, and in a nutshell, it's like extreme calisthenics and sort of gymnastic movements. Uh, but the workouts are done like with minimal equipment in a park with a pull-up bar. You know, it could be in a park with a, a bench or you know whatever. So, um, I trained a, a bunch of people uh, from overseas who had come to New York on vacation and 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 redone some workouts. And one of the guys I trained was a police officer from Denmark. Um, and as I understand it, I think the police academy there is something like three years. Um, it's almost like getting a degree. So all the, all the officers are at a, a higher caliber, I think, per man or woman. Um, do you think 
because you mentioned that you they couldn't have a, a selection process like there was one for the special missions unit, but do you think it would be beneficial if they sort of changed the the process for getting into a, a PD? I think it can be an improved upon. I, I can't speak to it just because I, I don't really know what all is in the academy. You know, I mean, I, I have friends that have graduated from, you know, police academies and, and they're, you know, very confident, uh, you know, in where they were in their jobs and they are in their careers now. So, you know, I, I can't, I can't really bad mouth it per se. I guess, you know, it, we started off with, you know, you know, the, uh, the, the shootings and stuff that have, that have been um, kind of, you know, the topic of conversation, um, you know, and could those be improved upon, you know, or those be kind of mitigated? And I think, yes, no, I don't know, you know, if that's done in the academy, uh, obviously it's a perishable skill, so it has to be continued, you know, training. Um, you know, I, I just don't know. I've, I've never been through a police academy. So, so you mentioned, um, Bill, you mentioned before about, uh, you know the 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 yearly quals or whatever for a PD, um, and how they're they're not introducing sort of stress into this equation. Um, when on a range, can you just sort of give a quick example of one way that you you will introduce stress to the the shoot situation? Yeah, by uh, reducing the amount of time allotted. Right, so. Uh, one one qualification is or a typical qualification you'll see for le and this is roughly uh from 25 yards you know you've got let's say 10 seconds to draw and fire two rounds uh and i've got i've got a qualification here on my phone give me one second i'll pull that up but to draw and fire uh two rounds from say 25 that is you know just too too much time that is way too much time um so you've, you've got to cut that time down until it becomes stressful for someone uh, i don't know dan what do you think yeah i mean you can so you can uh, induce stress by time you can um you can make someone, you know, target discriminate. You could use a, you know, a cartoon type target with different type of hands. And if you have a, a system where the targets can blade, you know, and turn towards the, the shooter, um, you know, so they have to assess the, the target and then make an accurate shot. So now you're in, inducing stress by they have to discriminate and make a, uh, you know, five zone, we'll call it shot or, a, you know, an in, incapacitating shot. Um, you can just make, you know, really, really tight shots that they have to take, you know, call it you know, like a hostage shot or something. Um, even though, you know, no, most law enforcement units are not doing, you know, hostage rescue just a, as a term. Um, you can add, you can add, you know, raise the person's heart rate by making them do physical activity and then making them shoot. So all that could be incorporated, you know, into, into an event, um, you know, and, and that could, uh, that could induce stress, uh, or would obviously induce stress for them. 
Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, and, you know, we did the same thing. We did the same thing in the military. We did the same thing when I was in the Rangers. I was only ever in two units, but, you know, we did the same thing uh, in the Rangers and then we did the same thing at the unit. Um, you know, whether we were setting up events for our teams or, uh, you know, our troop sergeant majors were setting up events or squadron sergeant majors were setting up events, you know, most of the time we had no idea what was coming. It was just you show up and they're like, all right, on the buzzer, turn around and engage what you see, you know, or, you know, they'd read out, okay, you got to, you know, climb this rope, run across this log, slide down this thing, shoot two rounds, run over here, do this, you know, shoot five rounds, pick this up, do that, you know. So there's always, uh, you know, some sort of challenge, um, you know, to, uh, to stress you out and then make sure you could still perform. I want to take a quick second to give a shout out to our sponsors for this episode. It's a new podcast called 912 about September 12th, 2001. Check it out. On September 11th, 2001, 60 amateur sailors were at sea filming a reality show on an 18th century replica ship. They were weeks from land and the nearest TV or radio. That morning, a single message was conveyed through one of their satellite phones. Four planes hijacked, two towers down, the Pentagon attacked, and thousands were dead. And that was it. Not a single other piece of information for weeks. What was it like to experience 9-11 in isolation? And how would they make sense of a radically different world they returned to? This is just one of stories and 9-12, the new podcast series from Amazon Music and Pineapple Street Studios. In each episode of 912, host Dan Taberski tells the story of characters whose lives would never be the same after September 11th. Through them, we began to realize that there are new lessons to be learned and that we just might have enough distance now from 9-11 to make sense of some things we couldn't understand before. I ex experienced September 2001, uh, September 11th in Manhattan, I was in uh, eighth grade at the time, and I remember how chaotic it was. It's one of those events that you'll always remember where you were at when it happened, if you were alive. Um, and I remember the the burning smell of the wreckage and the you know the metal. Uh, it lingered for weeks, and I also remember how sort of together we were on September twelfth. 2001 um, and this podcast does a fantastic job of capturing those unique experiences that people have had uh, whether that was through uh, terrible losses or just really unique experiences that they've come out on top of and become better human beings for it so it's a really fantastic podcast um, you can follow 912 wherever you get your podcast, or you can binge all seven episodes right now on Amazon Music or with Wondery Plus. So you guys, <clears throat> you mentioned that you guys had known each other for about 20 years or maybe a little longer. Were you guys in the same squadron at the unit? No, no, I was in, I was in a much better squadron. I was in B squadron and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Billy was in C and D. <laughs> I, I remember, uh, I remember seeing Dan in the hallways, and Dan's got this uh, resting bitch face like twenty four seven. 
and I, I just remember thinking, you know, what an ass that guy is. Uh, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then up in uh, West Virginia, he did something. I won't go into the details, but I just thought, what, you know, it just drove home. What a complete asshole. So then, uh, then I, I got uh, a contract job where I was teaching shooting and, uh, you know, I'm thinking, hey, this is great. I'm I'm doing something that I I'm getting paid to do something I love, right? And uh, and then a couple of days later, I was told, hey, you're going to be working with a guy, uh, Dan Ibach. And I was like, son of a bitch, you know. <laughs> well, you can't have they, it all. Yeah. And they, they told me that you know, hey, we're we're going to bring bring uh, Billy uh, Delaporte on, and I was like, uh, who? <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, we, we started working together and, uh, you know, we were working with another guy and we didn't completely agree with the methodology for the teaching. Uh, so we had that in common and, and, uh, <laughs> yes. and then our, our humor kind of matched, you know, we both have very dark humor that, you know, if anyone comes to one of our shooting courses where we're both there, they'll, they'll know what we're talking about. And then, I, I don't know, we hit it off, uh, we hit it off since then, so it's it's been a good run. Yeah, so yeah, for sure. Have both of you guys been to Afghanistan at any point in your careers? Oh yeah. yes. Okay, so now that you know we have, uh, you know, there's a, a drawdown. Uh, sort of the war is coming to a close, I think. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Do you have any thoughts on on Afghanistan? Yeah, I've I've got plenty of them. They're probably not, uh, you know, probably wouldn't do me any favors to voice them. But um, yeah, I don't, I just don't see it as a what would we would we gain there? Right. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. Anyways, more important than go, we lost that. Yeah, yeah that, that's what I'm. That, yeah, we're just just going to go back to the way it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat with Dan. I could. That's a soapbox I probably don't need to get on. That's <laughs> me off. Yeah, it's. Um, it, there's this app. It's a, it's a social platform uh, called Clubhouse. And um, it started off as iPhone only. Now they're rolling it out for Android. Uh, but you need, you need an invite to get on the platform. And. Um, when I when I do go on there, it's audio only, so you kind of just have discussions. And when I do go on there, I'm I'm in rooms about like national security and foreign policy stuff. And um, I've been in rooms where they're discussing Afghanistan, and you know there'll be some kind of journalist or uh, human rights activist who has spent time there, and um, you know they just keep talking about oh we can't leave them or, you know but once we leave it's going to deteriorate the security situation or whatever um but just listening to people speak that way it's like at what cost do we stay there you know um are you going to grab a rifle and go to afghanistan and make sure it's secure you know so i i feel like people need some perspective you know it's it's uh it's it's interesting to hear people speak about it though yeah, and you know, I mean, is it is it 
really secure now, I guess. I, you know, I don't know. Right. Um, I don't know. I think, I think it's one of those countries that, um, you know, it's just going to go its own way. No matter, you know, who, who tries to, uh, you know, put their thumb on it. Right. Yeah. So there was, um, you know, there, there's been a few sh- police-involved shootings um, the last couple of weeks. Um, <clears throat> one there's, of them... There's police shootings every day. Right. There's police yeah. shootings every day. Right. <laughs> um, and and it, I forget the kid's name. I think he was like 14 years old, uh, a young Hispanic kid from Chicago. Um, and at first, when I watched the video, I was like, ooh, that looks kind of bad. But... Um, yeah, then they explained that he was that same kid was with a known gang member, you know, two minutes prior, you know, a couple of minutes prior to the shooting. And um, uh, the other guy he was with, who was older, had just finished shooting at a car or something like that. And that's what the officers were responding to. And um, so then the, the officer approaches them. Uh, I guess. They ran in separate directions, so the officers split up, and one guy's chasing this kid down an alleyway. And um, the the kid takes out a pistol and tosses the pistol, and the officer saw that. And then once the kid turns around, he's, he tells him to put his hands up, but he fires like rapidly, and he and he kills him. Um, yeah. So so that was Adam Toledo, right? 13-year-old yes. Thirteen-year-old mm-hmm. kid. Yeah, hanging out yeah. in a dark alley. Yeah, two at in the morning. Thirty in the morning. Yeah, right. So my first question is, where in the fuck is his mama? Right. Right. Uh, that's that's my first question. The second thing is, as he's running, he pulls that gun. The officer sees the gun, and as Adam turns, his body is masking the gun. At the same time, he throws it behind the fence, right? right? So here's here's what the officer sees. He sees Adam's back, and he sees the gun. As Adam turns quickly to put his hands up, he tosses the gun. The officer does not see that because he has masked with his body the, the gun, if you're picking up what I'm putting down. And the kid just turns around, and, you know, that, that officer has one one second to to make a decision um and i man i tell you what i i told my wife i don't care what i have to kill i'll come back home to you all those times i was overseas i guarantee you there are cops walking out the door every day i will come home right better to be judged by 12 than carried by six yeah absolutely i agree um you know but where where's that what in the hell is going on where you got a 13-year-old at 2.30 in the morning with a gun out in a dark alley with a 21-year-old convicted dope dealer? Come on, man. Yeah, in, hey. a, in an area that's known for having, a, you know, gangbangers and whatnot, so. Right. And then why, why do we jump to race as the first thing, right? There, there was this fella, half your audience... I guarantee you will not know what I'm talking about. But August 28, 1963, he said that he hoped, no, he didn't say he hoped, he wished, no, it wasn't wished. 
He said he had a dream that someday his four young children would be judged not by the color of their skin, but rather the content of their character. Why, why are we not talking about the content of some of these folks' character? Right. That, that, blows, that blows my mind. Yeah, I, and and I I made a post about it on Facebook, and like my Facebook is kind of interesting because, you know, I'm from New York and I grew up here, and New York. I mean, there are conservatives here, but it's mostly liberals. So like from the people that I sort of been around, grew up, old teachers that I had or whatever, it's mainly liberal. And then through the podcast, through things that I'm doing as an adult, I have interacted with a lot of military folks or, or people in that kind of world, and it's more conservative. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see the different um, reactions to the same information on social media. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I'm tr- I try to figure out the, the thinking behind some of the... You know, like the people accusing, you know, that cop of, of being a murderer or, you know, he should go to prison, you know, et cetera, in the, the Toledo shooting. And um, it, it, it's, it just doesn't make sense to me. And uh, so I own a company called Strike Source. And um, our, the goal of Strike Source is to. Uh, help people become critical thinkers to to look at information with no kind of bias and and make a, a determination based on the actual information and on the staff of strike source we have former intelligence officers we have former uh, special missions guys um, and, and different sort of people uh, human rights activists who live in, in different parts of the world and one of the things that we do focus on is uh, human rights situations. So I've interviewed people from North Korea, uh, people from China. Um, and I've been interviewing this one woman for a series of interviews. I haven't released them yet, but they will be soon. And um, she grew up in China in the 60s and 70s. I think she left in the 80s. Um, so she was a young girl under Mao Zedong. Uh, she experienced the famine of the 60s in China. And then once the famine finished, I think it was like 65, they went into this period coined by Mao uh, as known as the Cultural Revolution. And in this Cultural Revolution, it was the most extreme form of uh, political correctness. But it was done in a brutal way and sort of savage. Like if you speak bad about Mao, then you know, we're going to, your entire family is going to feel it. You know, you're, we're going to kick you out of your home, send you to live in the boondock somewhere or just all kind of things. I mean, the, you know, for perspective, um, you know, slavery in, in this country was sort of a, a dark stain and, and, and sort of the ugliest part of American history. But they estimate like somewhere from like 10 to 15 million Africans were taken out of Africa and brought to the the West. Um, in China, they estimate, and it's hard to tell because they won't let anyone investigate this, uh, but they estimate 
north of 60 million people died under Mao, or maybe even 100, you know, somewhere in that ballpark. And that's a lot of people. So from talking to this woman and interviewing her, one thing that she tells me that's kind of frightening for her, and she lives in, in America, is she's seeing uh, similarities between the Cultural Revolution in China and the way that the can sort of cancel culture is uh, sort of growing in the United States. It, obviously, people aren't getting, you know, walked out back and shot in the back of the head for saying something, but but people are willing to cancel you, um, you know, dox you and, and do all kind of crazy things that are not necessarily violent. But, um, you know, I think a huge part of, of this, uh, you know, not being able to, uh, to see things from a police officer perspective from people of color, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, or or even white people who are who sort of side with the BLM movement, um, I just think there's an, a huge gap and lack of critical thinking there, and um, and just sort of talking to people who lived in communist China or North Korea, where you're not allowed to speak freely or, or have different ideas, um, you know, th those people really appreciate being here, and it's just interesting that people who grew up here kind of hate this system. Whereas people who grew up in, in horrible systems love it here, you know, it's it's really sort of an interesting situation. Yeah, no one's fighting to get out of America. You know what I mean? Yeah. No one's. Yeah, for I mean, we've got some faults, but man, it's that's pretty good. But, you know, we can we could go down that those soapboxes all day and, and you know, all of it uh, gets me fired up. But, you know, to to bring it back to what we think we could offer law enforcement. Um, you know, like Dan said, economy of time. Um Hell, I'd, I'd like to get at the national level where, you know, we kind of help re, redo the whole qualification thing or the stress shooting thing or, you know, try and, try and help out that way. You know, unfortunately, law enforcement gets tasked with all these other, you need to go do a six-hour qualification on... Uh, you know, whatever, how to shine your boots or you need to go do a six hour qualification on this. Um, you know, let those guys and gals do what we're asking them to do. Handle, yeah, handle crime, deescalate. Go, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that you know, I would hope that shooting would be, you know, absolutely the last resort for a uh, police officer. Um, and I would hope that, you know, like many, many officers, they never uh, draw their weapon, you know, in, in a 20, 30 year career. I mean, I think that would be the goal of every, every police officer. And, you know, they, they truly just police communities 
um, and help and uh, you know provide provide that service to the community. Um, that being said, like we've talked about, is you know you, they have to set themselves up, and you know we are one entity that can help uh, set them up for uh, success by either you know providing um, drills or uh, you know consultation or you know um, uh, actual you know them coming to one of our courses and and seeing seeing what what we have laid out there for you know best practices and and things to do to in, in case you do have to draw your weapon and and use it in the line of duty so you guys are <clears throat> headquartered in vegas is that correct yes we're we are headquartered in vegas um and but we we run courses all over the country right uh lately we've been running or you know for the past year we've been running one a month in las vegas uh you know we'll see as it gets hotter uh we'll probably you know see if we are still running those uh you know in july and august but uh pretty warm <laughs> yeah and uh I'm, I'm gonna try and put something on the books here uh at the pantial range uh in south carolina i uh, hear coming up shortly so that'll that'll be on our website soon yeah i just for the the courses that you mentioned for this coming weekend uh dan um you know i was talk i was communicating with uh the person running your uh, archon instagram and uh um, I, I basically, in conjunction with uh, Archon, I gave away two spots for those courses. Uh, I know one of them, one of the guys who picked it up is an Army recruiter in Vegas. Um, so it's it's cool that, you know, some people are, are, are getting some good training um, out there with you guys. Um, so you mentioned the Airsoft thing. Uh, let's talk about that. Um, why is it that you guys are using... Uh, airsoft for some of your courses well yeah so um you know we as the cost of ammo obviously is is the first one you know i mean ammo is just ridiculous and you know i know all the manufacturers are cranking it out as fast as they possibly can but you know i just have a lot of new gun owners and they want bullets and you have the you know everyone else wants bullets too so um you know ammo cost is you know very prohibitive to training um, so we looked at, you know, what could we do to still provide training to people and, uh, you know, have lower cost. And Airsoft was, you know, a way we could do it. And, you know, I was probably, the, you know, of the four of us in the company, I was probably the one I was like, yeah, man, this is going to be, you know, we're just going to get a bunch of kids out there that, you know, you know, dress up as, uh, you know, whatever, you know, stormtroopers and you know want to uh, do airsoft and you know hey whatever if we, if we that's what we get that's fine but you know what it's turned out to be is um you know we uh we have a, a shoot house in las vegas it's inside a warehouse um there's also uh you know we've partnered with evic and um they have one in texas and one in california that we'll have upcoming courses at and you know we we basically start out from you know, single uh, room clearing, you know, center and corner fed to uh, clearing multiple rooms, hallways, uh, and then to clearing our whole shoot house. And, you know, the airsoft, it uh, it really allows for, um, you know, the, the ability to use a shoot house because, number one, shoot live fire shoot houses are few and far between. Getting the use of them is near impossible. 
And if you do, I mean, the liability is just huge. I mean, you have, you know, you really have to vet people that are going to go in there and, and shoot live around other, uh, you know, other people. Um, you know, it takes a lot of training to, to get to that level. Uh, so, yeah, the, uh, the Airsoft is, has been good for us, I think, and good for our customers to provide them an opportunity to, you know, do CQB uh, or CQC, however you want to, you know, want to label it, um, in, in, a, in a pretty uh, uh, good environment here. Yeah, I agree. And and what about like a, a police department? Let's say uh, some SWAT guys are listening and uh, and they wanted to uh, have you guys come out and and train their department. How would that process work? Like, what would they do and and whatnot? So we've done that a few times, um, and you know, it, it'd be the same thing. They can just hit us up uh, through the website or through our emails. Uh, dan.ibach at arconreadygroup.com or just arg at arconreadygroup.com or bill.delaporte at arconreadygroup.com you know and uh, we've done you know we've gone out and we've done uh, live fire shoot house with uh, some law enforcement units we've done range time with multiple um, law enforcement units Uh, we've done sim munitions um uh, CQB with the uh, law enforcement units. Uh, we could ship our airsoft equipment, you know, if uh, units didn't have SIMS uppers for their equipment. Um, you know, we could ship airsoft stuff out with them. We have um, salient gray airsoft guns, you know, with the uh, optics, lights, um, white lights, suppressors for them. Just not obviously you're not suppressing an airsoft BB, but you're, uh, it gives you the extra length and weight. Uh, we have uh, uh, Glock airsoft pistols and holsters and pretty much everything that would be needed. So you know we could bring those to a department and uh, and train with those also. Uh, yes. You you mentioned the live fire uh, sort of shoot house, and and that's something that's I'm sure is more prevalent at the. Uh, special operations, and, and then even further on the tier one level, um, uh, and I feel like that's something people don't really consider much. But uh, in addition to having to shoot the right person, if you're on a hostage rescue or you enter a house, you also have to avoid shooting each other. Um, can you just sort of talk about that dynamic, you know, as operators, um, you know, how potentially dangerous it could be in a in a room full of people shooting at each other? Yeah, yeah, no, it was, uh, it, it, you know, I mean, it, it can get sketchy, of course, um, you know, but it, it mean, you know, hours and hours and hours of uh, practice, you know, is uh, we had a, you know, the way we moved within the rooms, the, you know, our target discrimination, you know, by all the reps that we did, you know, guys went from tunnel vision to having, you know, blinders fully off and, you know, and then you not only do you take all that, but then you take, uh, you know, the ability to take accurate shots when needed, um, you know, and knowing that those rounds are going to terminate inside a uh, human bullet trap. You know, but, uh, yeah. you know, the sketchiest one is you throw a, tub- a tubular target, you know, a bus, an aircraft, something like that, where, you know, multiple entry points and you're moving toward each other with, you know, a potential bad guy in the middle. Um, you know, I don't know if anyone 
you know, in, in uh, at least my time at, at the unit, you know, did that for real, but we trained a lot for it in case it did happen for real. And that was always something that was, uh, you know, a little bit higher pucker factor. Um, you know, when, when you know that that shot, there's literally another guy on the other side of the, the target. So, you know, that, tar- that bullet has to stop within the bad guy. Yeah. yeah you know, most, maybe not most, but a lot of organizations with regard to say SWAT or law enforcement, they'll, they'll typically stick to single point entry. They may have guys covering, um, you know, cracking and clearing or raking and clearing through windows or, you know, the back door, but typically you'll have your entire assault force uh, enter through one point of entry. Or was that the unit, you know, we entered through multiple breach points uh, to create as much confusion inside the structure as possible. And once you start doing that, you know, then like Dan was saying, your accuracy has to be uh, perfect, damn near perfect. Uh, you certainly can't, certainly can't miss bodies. Um, and then, you know, we also you know, will help guys kind of get comfortable with that idea or, you know, m- most, every SWAT team we've ever worked with, those guys are switched on, man. They're, they are solid, uh, solid folks. And there are times when maybe we only provide a couple of things for their toolbox. Um, and, you know, Dan and I have always stressed over, man, I, I hope these guys are getting something out of this. We've, we've never been the, the kind of instructors that are like, here's the, here's the POI. Here's what we're doing today. Uh, try to keep up. If you can't keep up, uh, you know, I, I can't help you. This is, this is what we're doing. You know, we've always tried to cater each course to the client. Um, so, so yeah, it's a, it's a different world when you start doing multiple, multiple entry points. And, you know, that's something we've, we've helped some guys with out in the past. And most people think, Running in a room as fast as you can and pulling the trigger as fast as you can is where speed comes from with regard to CQB. And that's, that's not where speed comes from. Speed comes from efficiency of post-assault procedures, uh, economy of motion inside the shoot house, getting to the point where uh, less communication and more nonverbal. You know, I, if Dan and I were to go into a shoot house together right now, there's no doubt in my mind, I know exactly what he's going to do and where he's going to go in a room. And, you know, you just feed off those things. Those, those are the kind of things that we try to help, help folks with uh, when we do that level of instruction. And just sort of that aspect of it, um, where you feel confident, where like, you know, you know, he's going to go this way. So you go that way. And, and, and that kind of thing. Is that something that just comes from the, the years of experience Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, you know, part of our, our training program, you know, at, at work, you know, we had guys from all different back backgrounds, you know, some probably had, well, had a ton of experience in doing CQB, but we started over with everybody, broke them all down to, uh, you know, bare bones and, um, you know, taught them the way that, that we wanted it to be done. And, you know, some people, you know, refused to accept that way and, you know, ended up having to leave, um, you know, and the people that were able to, okay, I got it. This is the way we're going to do it. You know, they, they went on to do great things. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was just, uh, you know, starting over and, you know, even down to like tape drills, you know, one man tape drills or two man CQB tape drills, and then four person, you know, tape drills and you're still not even shooting yet. And then, you know, two people in a room and we're shooting at targets that we've discriminated against, you know, or not discriminated against, but we're doing discrimination on, um, the, uh, you know, and that's all built up from their time on the range, you know, the months prior leading up to it, you know, to four people in a room shooting live to, you know, multiple teams entering a house, you know, and to, you know, basically ending up with, uh, you know, when you get to a squadron, you have, uh, you know, potentially size of the target, you know, six different breach points all going down at the same time, which is, you know, ridiculous. And a lot of fun, but you know, yeah. you can only move as fast as you can shoot accurately. You know, if, if you can shoot accurately at a full sprint, well, good on you, man. Uh, get in there, get at it. Uh, but if you can't shoot accurately at a full sprint, well, then maybe you need to slow down. Uh, you know, so guys, guys would only move as fast as they could shoot accurately. A lot of self-discipline. So I've, um, <clears throat> I'm not someone who goes shooting often or anything like that, but just sort of being involved in the community in, in my own way and and just following or being friends with guys, you know, like yourselves who who do this for a living. Uh, I've seen uh, this one video where uh, one guy was a retired Special Forces guy, the other guy was a retired SEAL. And they were talking about... Um, uh, when you know when they're entering a room, if you keep your gun at the the high ready or the low ready, and and they were sort of talking about the the differences, and then how uh, over time they, the the Green Beret was talking about how they adapted to to whatever the situation required. Can you sort of talk about uh, high ready, low ready a little bit? Yeah, I've seen that video. Um... I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a difference between, you know, high port and low ready. Uh, and I've worked with some STS six guys. Um, and you know, they're, they're big fans of the high port. Um, whereas at the unit, no one ever did that. It was always low ready, uh, or high ready and high ready being just scanning over the top of your optic, uh, as your collapsing your primary and secondary sectors uh, in a in a room but um, we the unit has just always been low ready and we put it on a clock before you know somebody at a low ready um, on the buzzer come up and engage the target somebody at high port you know do it um, I don't think there is I, I don't think one way is right or not I just know I'm a low ready kind of guy. Yeah. Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, the bottom line is you, you gotta, you gotta pick something and then train to it. You can't just waffle back and forth and, you know, just say whatever works for you. You know, each, you, you could argue each, you know, till you're blue in the face on, you know, why one's more important than the other one or has more validity than the other one. But, um, you know, at, at the unit, we had the low ready, like Billy said, and, um, you know, that was, that was what we trained to. So we were really good at it. Yeah. I, I always thought it, 
in the beginning, I thought it was maybe they just don't want to put a hole in the, the bottom of their boat uh, or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, I saw this video, um, and I guess this really relates to home defense. Um, but I, I don't know how, how much this kind of thing is taught or, or even talked about, but um, it was basically the guy was, was clearing the, a home by himself. And, and the, the idea was that you know, you, you're out somewhere, and you, you come back home, and, and you know, the door's open a crack or something, and, and a window's broken, whatever, and it, it looks like someone may be in there. And, and that was sort of the whole concept that you, know, you, you clear the, the house by yourself. Um, is that something that you guys trained on at all while you were at the unit or, or something that you've trained on since you've retired? No. Uh, uh, if, I, if I came home um, and the uh, window or was broken or the door was open at my house, I would call the police. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to go clear a house by myself. Um, right. You know, now... You know, that being said, we, you know, on the security side, we've had instances where, you know, we've um, cleared residents, you know, just because, of, you know, for whatever reason, the alarm went off or, you know, something or we needed to clear residents. So, uh, sure, we, we, we've done it before, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot of, I, you know, I don't, I haven't watched the video that you're, you're referring to, but it's a lot of, uh, you know, pying off corners and, you know, not, not trying to expose yourself and, you know, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, yeah. even in, even in home defense, you know, um, when my son was young and his bedroom was upstairs, you know, and, you know, my wife, you know, if, if someone came in the house, uh, you know, she was going in the bathroom into the bathtub and with the phone and I was going as fast as I could you know, not even, not piling off corners or anything, just straight upstairs to my son's bedroom. You know, and that was, that was that. And, you know, if, if the guy, expo then, you know, if, if he uh, shows himself, he or she or whatever, then, you know, it is what it is, whatever that state's laws are. So, um, but yeah, that, that was, I, I'm for getting on the phone and, and calling the police to do, do their job as opposed to me having to, you know, deal with some knucklehead. Or, or deal with getting sued in civil court. Uh, but yeah, if, if yeah. I thought somebody was in my house and my daughter's bedroom was down the, you know, upstairs or, or whatever. Yeah. I'm, I'm not pie in corners. I'm hauling ass, uh, to my daughter's room. I'll take it as it comes. Yeah. Yeah. That's just me. What the fuck do I know? Well, even, even to the point, like, so Billy's got one of those TLR sixes on his, um, on his Glock. And, uh, so, I mean, I, I thought that thing was pretty slick. So I just got one of those because my wife's, we, we've had some break-ins in the neighborhood, like and, at night, like 3 a.m. Like guys are, um, well, this one, this one guy that caught him on camera now, but you know, he's, uh, like flipping the, uh, breaker box outside and then, uh, breaking windows and coming in. So I was like, look, uh, you know, this thing, you know, she's a little nervous on using it, you know, cause she doesn't go to the range really that much, which is fine. And I was like, look, just here's how you turn on the, just press this button and, you know, it's going to turn on a big white light and the, the red dots out there and, you know, just start hollering that you have a gun and shine that light and that laser beam out the, you know, the bedroom door. And, you know, if he walks into it, well, you know, and start pulling the trigger, but 
uh, you know, other than that, you know, just keep yelling it and get the phone. So, but yeah. the, those things are pretty slick. Those TLR sixes, especially because yeah. you, you don't have, you don't have to you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do stance grip. You don't have to do anything. Just put it on them, pull the trigger. What 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 is that exactly? Can you explain? Yeah, I that? agree. No, it, it it's, it's like a little flashlight mount. Laser light combo it goes under a, a Glock 43 or, or 44. I think there's a TLR one. Yeah, there's there's like a TLR one for like full size. They probably make them for every gun. All right, awesome. Um, so again, so if people want to sort of hook up with you guys on a training and just reach out on the website or email or or even Instagram. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Yep. That's the easiest way. All right, cool. Um, so yeah, it was it was great having you guys back on here. Um, it's been a while since I've done a podcast with more than one person on at the same time, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, and hey, like like we said before, man, you got a you got a free invite down to one of our courses. Come on down. Uh, we'd love to have you see in person what uh, you know the secret sauce. Yeah, I would love to, man. A couple of my buddies keep talking about um, a Vegas trip, so maybe I, I will uh, come holler at you guys. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah.